0: and thank you for doing such an able job with all those names from Jeremiah and for reading this morning. <laughs> Hindsight being 2020, we probably should have consulted a map first. To be fair, this was the mid-90s, so it wasn't as easy as pulling out your phone and checking Google Maps or relying on GPS. We would have had to have gone and found a paper map. But there were paper maps to be found. It's just that in all of our teenage wisdom, we felt like we shouldn't bother. Anyway. It was the spring of my sophomore year of high school during finals week and my friends and I decided that since we would be done at lunchtime we would spend our afternoon tubing down the Edisto River. Most of you probably aren't familiar with the Edisto while it is nowhere near as grand as the St. John's. Its main channel is maybe Twice as wide as Goodby's Creek let's say. It is unique. The Edisto River you see is the largest blackwater river system in North America and amongst the largest in the world as it slowly makes its way through the bottomlands of South Carolina. It picks up tannins and other nutrients from the stands of cypress trees and others that it flows through. And these things turn its waters black. The color of strong English tea. More importantly for us, however, as teenagers, it was also cold. And a cold river on a hot day. Sounded like just the thing. So after taking our tests, we dropped one of our pickup trucks off at the Orangeburg Country Club, which sits on the riverbank. We drove a little ways up to the Shillings Bridge, about two miles as the crow flies. We climbed up on the bridge, hooked our arms through our inner tubes, and jumped off, ready to spend the afternoon On the water. We probably made it about four hours before we realized that we had made a mistake. Not because of the alligators or the water moccasins that were sunning themselves on the banks. We knew that they didn't want to mess with us any more than we wanted to mess with them, and not even because of all the deer flies that kept trying to bite us but instead because we finally accepted the reality that we had absolutely no idea where we were. We knew that the Schillings Bridge was somewhere upriver behind us, and we knew that the country club was somewhere downriver ahead of us. It's just that it turned out that between points A and B, there happened to be a whole lot more river than we had anticipated. Surely, we kept telling ourselves every time we saw another bend in the river. Surely around that one, we'll come to the country club. And yet around every single bend, all we ever saw was more river and more swamp and a sun that kept sliding lower and lower behind the trees. So in case you don't know, let me save you the trouble of finding out the hard way. It turns out that rivers do not flow nearly as straight as crows fly. In mid-May, in the low country of South Carolina, the sun doesn't set until around 8 o'clock at night, so it was probably about 7.30 when we finally saw a sign of civilization. We rounded a bend and there in front of us in the river was a dock. And then through the trees we looked and we saw a house up on a hill and we thanked the Lord our God with glad and generous hearts. To be fair, I'm not sure just how happy the farmer was when he opened his door and found eight or nine dripping wet teenagers on his porch hoping to bum a ride from him back to their truck. But he was kind enough to do it all the same. By the way, Mom and Dad, if you're watching, I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. (laughs) But considering that it was about 25 years ago, I just want to put out there that the statute of limitations has probably run out, and as is often the case, no harm and no foul. I was reminded of that story this week as I looked at our Luke text for today. Luke 10 verses 25 to 37 is undoubtedly one of the best known texts in all of Scripture. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when suddenly he fell into the hands of robbers. As he's lying there in the ditch, half dead, bleeding, Jesus tells us that a preacher comes walking by. And when he sees the man, he quickly crosses to the other side and hurries along. A little while later, a deacon happens upon him. I'm, of course, updating the details for us, but I'm sure you get the picture. And when the deacon sees the man lying there, he too crosses the road and picks up the pace, muttering under him under his breath, Better him than me. Then Jesus says, Came a hated Samaritan. Which would make him what? I don't know. A Clemson fan? And against both type and expectations, it is this man who takes pity on the guy in the ditch. As we all know, because of this, this story typically gets told as the parable of the good Clemson fan. I mean, Samaritan. But whenever we tell the story like that we miss something that is very important. The existence of the inn that the man is carried to. You see, typically when we tell the story of the Good Samaritan, our telling of the story ends there on the Jericho Road. The Good Samaritan takes pity on the man where the religious leaders had not. That seems to be the story, and yet the story itself has another act that is all too often left out. Then the Samaritan put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of them. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is about two days' earnings. He gave this money to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him. When I return, I will repay you whatever else on top of this you need to spend. It's like that house that my friends and I finally came across that day on the river. It wasn't just that we found another human being. That afternoon, we had already passed a couple of fishermen in kayaks. But by themselves, they couldn't have done all of us any good. Instead, our salvation that day was that we finally came across a place with enough resources to help us. A dock. Where we could climb out of the water. A telephone where we could call our parents and let them know we were okay. A guy with a truck big enough to give us all a ride back where we needed to be. The same's the case in Jesus' parable. The Samaritan, yes, is a hero. He does the kind thing, the brave thing. He is the one who drops what he is doing and goes out of his way. He sees the man in the ditch. And he does what nobody else walking along that road on that day is willing to do. So certainly, the Samaritan is a hero. He is, in fact, good. And yet, at the same time, the innkeeper is as well. Where the Samaritan is the one who goes out of his way to help a neighbor in need, the innkeeper is the one who is there to provide for the man's care. The Samaritan picks the guy up, dusts him off, sits him on top of his own animal, and makes sure that he is out of harm's way. It's heroic. And yet, that is essentially all he can do. He doesn't have the resources, the infrastructure, the training. He can help his neighbor in need. And he does. But only up to a point. So he then takes him to the inn and entrusts the rest of his care... To the innkeeper. And as we've all been told ever since we were little, as disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to follow the example of the Good Samaritan. But what if, brothers and sisters, what if at the same time we are also called to be the innkeeper? Of course, it's not nearly as exciting being an innkeeper, is it? Staying in one place, keeping house, patiently waiting to see who stops by. Keeping the inn up, making sure that it is ready to receive guests. Making sure that the roof doesn't leak and the lights stay on. Fixing meals, cleaning toilets, sweeping floors, doing all of the mundane tasks day after day that come with maintaining an institution in this world. So no, it is not the most glorious existence. And it's easy to see why the Samaritan gets top billing whenever this story gets told. And yet, without the resources of that inn and without the dedication of that innkeeper, the man whom the Samaritan helped save would have been in significant trouble. The Samaritan could give him a hand, but it took the inn to be able to give him a home. And so what if, brothers and sisters, what if we are supposed to see ourselves in both halves of this story? As individuals in the Samaritan looking out for our neighbors, going out of our way to help them, but as church, as H-A-B in the innkeeper, Making sure that we have a place where people can come, where our neighbors can be brought in order to receive the love and the care and the attention that they need. Where folks can heal, recover, where they can get more than just triage, more than can be given by just one person or on just one day. A place where they can rebuild their lives. Or even a place where they might build their lives anew. So give the Samaritan credit. He knew to stop and help the man lying in the ditch. And he knew that he needed to then take that man to the inn. And he also knew. That ends require resources to function. The Samaritan took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever else it is that you spend. Resources to make repairs, to pay bills to have things on offer when folks like him realize that they need them to be there day after day, year after year, waiting to see who it is that is next, who shows up in a time of need, who it is that needs a meal, who it is that needs a help, or perhaps who it is that comes needing a home and a family to love them, because you never know, none of us ever really knows what might be just around the next bend. Two weeks ago, here in this very room, we held an event for a mission partner of ours. It was a fundraiser for Amani Sasa, a refugee resettlement organization in Kampala, Uganda, that was begun by a CBF minister. Uganda has one of the largest refugee populations in the entire world, and in one night, we raised over $17,000 for that organization and for their care. They told us that that was the single most successful event like that that they had ever had. The money that we raised will affect the lives of thousands and thousands of refugees in Uganda, children, parents, Grandparents, all of them. It's the kind of thing that makes you proud. To know that we, that our church can be just that generous. To be able to help people who have lost everything, whose entire lives have been overturned, to be a place of grace. For neighbors far away, just as we are for neighbors here at hand. It makes you proud to be a part of this church. It makes you smile. And it makes you thank God for the opportunity to help and for the resources to be able to help. And yet at the same time, being able to do those things, to host that event, to raise that money, to help those people, indeed to be able to help all of the people whose lives are touched by the missions and the ministries of this church, all of that good requires other things as well. Volunteers willing to share their time and their talents. Staff willing to lead and to serve, to plan and manage and troubleshoot, to do all of those things that are behind the scenes and that if they are done well, so often go unnoticed. And yes, to be able to clean and to care for and maintain our facilities. To keep the place, in other words, in a place of grace. So, no, it may not be glamorous and it may not always be inspiring or exciting or worthy of front page news, but thank God for in keeping. Thank God for inns and for innkeepers, for their steady presence in our lives and in our community when we and our neighbors suddenly realize that we need them. For when we and our neighbors realize that we always need them, even on our best days. And thank God for the opportunity that we have to do that here. To bring our resources to this place. To pull them together as a church, whatever we have, whatever we feel like, we can faithfully, generously, responsibly bring to the table. And to do more good with them together than we could ever possibly do by ourselves. Thanks be to God. Amen.